The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the program, uh, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, today's topic is one that should be of great interest to a number of people. As many of you know, we have discussed the archaeology of Mesoamerica in some grand detail during a variety of different episodes. And um, one of the major elements that we have discussed is the evolution of various cultural and archaeological traditions in Mesoamerica, concentrating largely on Mexico proper and the various cultures, the Aztecs and the Maya that flourished in uh, in the Mexican heartland and in the case of the Maya in the Yucatan Peninsula. Today's topic is going to take us away from the Yucatan and again, in, the, in, in keeping with the theme of the Maya, we are going to talk about a more extended branch of the Mayan culture based in the area of Lake Patan in Guatemala. My guest today is Dr. Tim Pugh, who is a uh, professor of anthropology at Queens College in New York City. Uh, ironically, even though both Tim and I are based in New York City, I'm broadcasting from Pennsylvania today, and Tim is actually uh, broadcasting from Petan in Guatemala. Uh, Tim Pugh is, uh, as I said, a professor of anthropology at Queens College, and his research interests include the Maya architecture, spatial analysis, ritual, social memory, and cultural contact. He is now the director of a very unique project called the Itza Archaeology Project, which explores the relationships generally between the Maya at the time of the contact with Euro-Americans. Tim Pugh's um, work has involved a variety of different types of research foci, and he is going to discuss probably in some great great detail what the situation was like at the contact period, which is a, a very unique topic that we have discussed in terms of North American archaeology and Mesoamerican archaeology generally. But in some grander detail, uh, we have some details 
because of the uh, extent of work that's been done in the Mayan territory, uh, we should be able to get some very interesting information of what the contact period was actually like. Uh, Dr. Pugh's dissertation examined how the collage of Peten utilized ritual architecture and performances as the foundations of ethnic identity. He's conducted uh, excavations at Zakpeten, a site that lies in the former Kowaj region, and found that in the mid-15th century, the ceremonial architecture of Zakpeten was reconstructed to resemble that of Mayapan and, I suppose, other, other sites. His current work, which began in 2013, is investigating early globalization in the Americas, which is really one of the themes that we want to deal with. Uh, Spain was, in the 16th century, European superpower, and as many of you know, its influence and spheres of influence spread into the uh, Americas and creating, uh, creating a system of... Uh, Social, social and cultural frontiers that essentially brought the two populations, the Euro-Americans, the Spaniards, and the indigenous people together. So we're going to be discussing that, and I want to take this opportunity to welcome you, Tim Pugh. Thanks so much for joining our program. Well, thank you for inviting me. Let's begin with um, some basic information. Most people who do investigations in your part of the world, and uh, I'm speaking generally about the, the Mayan region, and I know you're outside of the Yucatan, which, which is mm-hmm. uh, what a lot of people normally associate with being the heartland of the, of, of the Maya civilization, and where we've had, as I should uh, note to you, we've done a really extensive program on some of the uh, engineering feats of the Mayan, of the Maya civilization, specifically related to water utilization, irrigation, agriculture, and generally the socioeconomic baselines that allowed the Maya to flourish. But let's talk about your particular area. You're focusing on the post-classic rather than the classic period. Uh, the classic period, as many of us know, was the one which featured large monumental architecture, elaborate artifacts, and some of the very, for lack of a better word, sexy types of archaeological <clears throat> developments and cultural developments that, that were the signature of the Maya. How did you get into the post-classic period uh, in terms of your own personal research? Well, personally, I, I, I worked with Don and Prudence Rice, who were at Southern Illinois when I was a graduate student. When I originally came into to Southern Illinois, I was working on, in the southeastern United States, and they gave me an opportunity to work down here, and I just, I just loved it. Um, and the thing about the Rice's work and also about my work is that, I mean, there are massive cities, and as a matter of fact, right now I'm working on a massive Maya city, um, and I am doing things other than contact work, but... The, the thing about it is, is that a lot, the post-classic and also the contact period, which you know both together would run in this area from around um, 930 to uh, 15, I'm sorry, to 1697, which is quite a long time. But it's been largely ignored because people have focused on you know the larger temples and monumental architecture and, and tombs and, and stela, um, which were not character, generally characteristic of the post-classic. And so, as a result, that that time period is sort of overdone, and we really don't know that much about the post-classic. And so, there's sort of a, there, well, at least in the 70s and 80s, there was a sort of a gap there, and the Rice's worked, Don and Prue Rice worked to fill in the gap, and then I'm sort of succeeding them in this area. And um, the 
the problem with that gap, one of the many problems that it caused, is that it, it well, first of all, it, it made the Maya sort of disappear after the, the collapse, the, the classic period collapse. And so sometimes when you look on the Internet, you see uh, these myths about how the you know, spaceships came and took the Maya away or they, they went somewhere and no one knows. Part of the problem with this is the over-focus on the classic period. And there, there hasn't been an equal focus on the post-classic until actually recently, until the, probably the 90s and you know, until recently. Um, and so that's one of the things that drew me to this time period because it was largely unknown. And it's, um, and it's allowing, not only is it something that was not that well known, but it also um, is helping to sort of even things out by working on this um, time period. So, so, that's, uh, so let me ask you this. I mean, uh, very clearly the archaeological signature of the classic period is uh, at this point reasonably well known. Um, right. What was the traditional view of the transition from the classic to the post-classic before sort of the flurry of work that you're talking about that started, I'm guessing, in the 80s and into the 90s, along with the Rices and your own work. What was the traditional view of, of what happened? Because you've mentioned, you know, the pseudo-archaeology types of stuff, right. and we've talked about that a lot on the program, and, and I think most of our listenership is aware of the fact that the aliens did not come and change things. <laughs> That's right. They, <laughs> they really have to discussed that in great detail, actually, about three programs ago. So what was the feeling of that black hole, let's call it, um, before you guys started to really uh, mount uh, uh, extensive research in that way? Well, back, back in the 60s and 50s, they actually referred to the post-classic period as the decadent period. That, uh-huh. was, that was the actual name of it. If you look at it, old, uh, at, it's at not all, but, uh, but a lot of old... Uh, academic um, writings. It's, it's referred to as the decadent period because what was believed to have happened and what did happen to some degree is that um, they, they stopped building large temples. They stopped carving stone monuments with glyphs on them. They, there was a definite decrease in the amount of sort of elite paraphernalia. And so all those fancy things that everybody likes to look at, you know, I also like to look at those things. But a lot of those things sort of faded out. Now that's, you know, that's what was known back then. And so they referred to it as a decadent period because things, things seem to kind of uh, fall, you know, fall apart. But what, it's actually more complicated than that because what happened is similar to other areas of the world like, like Rome and, and, uh, and, and Teotihuacan and, and central Mexico, there was a cultural collapse. And so at around 900 to, to 930 um, A.D., um, essentially what happened is the, uh, the large states fell apart. And, and when that happens, people don't just fall down dead. What, what happens is they break up generally into smaller units. They become balkanized. And so society becomes a little bit less complex. And so there were still what would, well, what used to be called 20 years ago, you still had some, some chiefdoms and some minor states in the post-classic, but you didn't have that, that same sort of um, regional state uh, for, or even city-state formation. Well, maybe maybe at Mayapan, but but in most areas you did not see um, state societies. So, yes. Now, uh, I guess my question to you would be at this point: What caused it? I mean, clearly this predates the Euro-American incursions by a good five to six hundred years. What happened? That is a good question. That's a lot of, there's a lot of debate about that. It used to be thought 
that the Maya um, overtaxed their resources, that they, they grew too big, they relied too much, you know, that they, they overused their land and so on. So that's one theory. Another theory is there was too much competition, um, that the people were, there was too much infighting, and so that, that brought about a collapse. Um, another is that disease uh, occurred. Uh, a more recent theory is that there was a, a sort of a drought that uh, that may have happened that would have, and there are some historical descriptions of droughts, and it's believed that maybe that drought was just enough to, to make these large states fall. But the bottom line is we don't know. And it could be like, it could be a combination of all of those. Um, in fact, it probably, if you think about it, if there was, if there was any sort of drought or f- other food shortage, there's going to be more competition. So there would have been, inc- and there is evidence for increased warfare, uh, at least in uh, increased fortifications in some areas. So, but the bottom line is we don't know. We just, we, what we do know is what happened, and that's that uh, they stopped carving monuments, not all monuments, but most monuments with, with uh, glyphs on them. We, we don't see elite paraphernalia, and also they, they seem to have changed their calendar. They started to use a different calendar, um, which is somewhat odd, but uh, that, that's also part of the, what happened um, in the late part of the classic period. And on that note, we're going to take a very brief break, and we will return with our guest, Dr. Tim Pugh of Queens uh, College in New York City, and our discussion of the Maya. After these words, stay tuned. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join Dr. Linda Iniguez every week for the Shrink Wrap Forum. This show discusses topics that you wouldn't normally hear in today's media. In the forum, virtually no topic is off limits. We invite you to join us and participate or dive into the stream where we value independent thought, talk to those people that are making a difference, and explore ideas considered outside the box. The Shrink Wrap Forum can be heard live every Monday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Can you dig it, baby? 
Uh, we're back with our special guest, Dr. Timothy Pugh, who is a professor of uh, anthropology and archaeology at Queens College. And we have been discussing and trying to segue into his research, which is on the post-classic, and which will eventually transition into discussion of your American contact with uh, the Maya population in Guatemala. And uh, I guess, uh, Tim, just, just to sort of slightly follow up on where we were at, you were saying that we really don't know why this sudden collapse of the classic Maya occurred and um, why all of a sudden the, uh, the monumental architecture disappeared, the polities sort of collapsed onto themselves and started to fragment. Uh, you mentioned the term balkanization, which mm-hmm. is a common watchword for many of us in archaeology for things falling apart and master civilizations sort of starting to fragment. Why don't you just give us a little bit more information about that and then uh, try to bridge that into the kind of work that you're doing right now and what motivated you to actually look at the post-classic in some greater detail at your site. Sure. Well, it's as you noted, it's, it's much more complicated than, than what I reviewed earlier. If you talk about this area, just, just pretend, if, if you compare the classic period to the, actually to the most of the early and late classic period to the terminal classic and post-classic period, what you see is, is that people, they don't just sort of break up into smaller groups. They also shift where they're living. So, for example, the massive city of Tikal, it's about, it's actually about probably 30 or 40 kilometers to the northeast of where I am right now. Um, it was largely abandoned. And then a lot of the other large cities were, they weren't completely abandoned, but they were largely abandoned. And population shifted back toward the edges of lakes, um, and so what we see is that when, when I'm excavating, what I frequently will find, I'll have a lot of pre-classic, then I'll have very little early classic, a little bit of late classic, then a lot of terminal classic, and then a lot of post-classic. And so along the, you know, the edges of the lakes, we see that the, 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 uh, at, you know, the heart, sort of the heart of the classic period is not quite as strong there. And that's because they were living in areas away from the lakes, not everybody, but a, but a lot of people. So, so you know, Tikal and, and a lot of those cities were not on the, the lake's edge. They, they, they actually built aguadas and other systems of water storage and so on. And so so that's, what you're seeing, what you're seeing and, and tell me if I'm right here, um, that there is a – and again, as archaeologists, we, we sort of try to synthesize these types of systematic observation – are you saying that the sudden clustering by the lake represents some kind of economic necessity based on the collapse that once uh, once the centrality of governments and polities disappeared, then all of a sudden people started moving to the immediate vicinity of, of water resources and subsistence environments because their uh, large-scale functional systems broke down? That's that's pretty well what I think is going on, but it's something that hasn't been investigated enough yet. I mean, we actually on our project here we have uh, we have a woman, Dr. Carolyn Frywall, who's looking at the the use of animal resources, and also she's examining human bones to to see what people are eating. And but just from our our middens, the the trash piles that we excavate, we know that they're eating a lot of they're eating a lot of shellfish. Um, there are a couple of uh, there's an apple snail then an, and another um, it's, it's called a hute I don't I don't, I don't know what it is in English uh-huh. um, but they're they're using a lot of that a lot they're eating a lot of turtles 
um, also some a lot of land animals too. Um, as far as maize, we, we do know from you know descriptions by the Spanish that they were consuming a lot of maize. But uh, again, I think what I think happens, and again, this is a hypothesis that hasn't been tested yet, is that probably as a result of the collapse, breakdown of, of a central government um, and in the breakdown of trading networks and the breakdown of, of political alliances and so on, people had to shift to a place where they had a more steady supply of resources. And I, I'm, a type, I, I'm an archaeologist. I don't really like economic arguments that much, but this is one of those situations where, where I can't, you know, there, there's no debate on my part because it's, it's obvious that they're moving where they can get good, good food. So... That's, that's what I think that we're seeing here. Let me ask you another question in that regard. You're looking, the way you described it, if you look at the lake edges, and, and those are very distinctive depositional environments that preserve uh, very unique kinds of signatures of, of various archaeological occupations. What are you seeing? In, are they, first of all, are they stratified? Are they layers uh, very distinctive? And are they fairly thick? And what are they showing you in several places about the change in, say, environment and archaeological and, and cultural adaptation from a variety of places at, on the lake edge? What, what are they telling you? Well, I would take Zach Patin, for example. Um, yeah. we, see, we see occupation of that site. Um, it's a little bit to the east of here. We see occupation at probably around um, 800 uh, B.C. and pretty steady occupation up to, to around um, A.D. 200. And then it's sort, of the, the, it's sort of, it's like everybody disappears. And this is because they're probably going to live places like Tikal and Ishlu and all these other large cities. And then at around, probably around AD, uh, actually around AD 750, the site seems to be reoccupied and we see a lot of construction there. Um, and then, and then, you know, we move into the post-classic. But as far as what the animal bones are telling us, if I compare the pre-classic to the the post-classic, the, you know, the, the stratified uh, deposits of animal bones, the biggest change I see is an increase in the use of turtles. Um, and as far as consumption of, of turtle, I, I don't. There, you do see some turtle um, remains in the in the pre-classic, but you, in, and also in the classic, but you don't see the the amount, and also the pomaceous shell, the the uh, the apple snails. These are these are freshwater snails, and also the the hootes, which are freshwater as well, but they they tend to be in streams as opposed to lakes. So that there is this again in the post-classic, there is this shift in focus to these these uh, lake and and stream resources. So and that's is yes. that a function. Of political collapse, or is it a function of eco- uh, environmental degradation, a combination of the two? Well, that's the question I, I I don't know the answer to because again there is um, this this older idea that there was uh, that the, the, the Maya overtaxed their environment. Now other people have countered and said, well, no, they were you know they had gardens within the cities, um, and and then a sort of a new theory is that maybe there was a drought. Uh, a long-term drought that, uh, and since people relied or had begun to rely on maize for a lot of their their calories, it would have forced them to move um, to an area where they can get other resources. I mean, they, they would have still been using maize, but um, if they moved to the the lake edge, they would have the the turtles and also the pomacea, the the apple snails, which uh, would have provided um, 
some nutrition. It's not optimal, but it, it's something. Sure. And, you know, you raise an issue that I think a lot of people um, are very curious about, a traditional model that a lot of people out there, not just professional archaeologists, <clears throat> but, but also buffs and, and uh, folks who are interested in antiquity and cultural development, have recently assumed, and I think mistakenly, that uh, the pristine environment was largely starting to degrade at a, at a very large uh, level at a, at a high magnitude once the Euro, Euro-Americans came in. And I think research, especially in Mesoamerica over the past 20 years, are saying that that's not really the case, that mm-hmm. in periods like the one that you're talking about, there was already a huge signature of humans starting to destroy their environment, uh, if you want to call it that, and starting to tax the natural resources of the environmental settings. Does your research show you that that's also the case? Well, actually, because we're actually, where I am, um, we're not dealing with the classic period, the, the, the larger classic period um, cities. The, the sites that I'm on are they're generally either pre-classic or um, or um, post-classic, so I don't we, we don't actually see evidence of that. Now, we do, what we do see, actually, in, in some cases, we see that, you know, there is some evidence of, um, you know, where they had their raised fields and, and things like that, but we don't, you know, at this point, we don't have any evidence for in around the edges of the lake. Um, with the exception of the site of Ishlu, there, there aren't any um large classic period cities, actually with, with the exception of Ishlu and also a site called Yasha, um, there aren't any that are really, really close to um, the lake. There are so, some. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. No, no. I guess my question to you is, is Guatemala, uh, because of its, uh, from what I'm seeing, uh, its distance from the Maya heartland, is it, is it uh, an, almost an outlier or is it an area in which the pre-classic and post-classic populations made more of an imprint than they did during the classic uh, traditional period of fluorescence? No, actually, well, you know, a lot of people consider Guatemala to be the Maya heartland. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh-huh. Yeah, it, yeah it's, the, the thing about, in, in fact, in Yucatan, there's, even, there's a strong terminal classic to post-classic period presence. See, the city of Mayapan in Yucatan is the, lar- is the largest post-classic city um, that we know of. But uh, the, as far as the cities in uh, you know, the large classic period cities, we have Tikal, which, is, which may be the largest. Then you have Kalakmul, which, is, which, which was Tikal's main competitor. That, that would be up you know, in, in Mexico. Um, and then various other classic period sort of super um, centers that you know generally had populations. Well, I, I tend to be really conservative in my estimates, but Tikal probably had around sixty thousand people living uh, within the city itself. Um, and so during you had a lot classic? of during the during classic? the during the classic period, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. But as you know, it's really hard to determine how many people occupy the site at, at a given time. But that is a pretty conservative estimate. There, there are others that are you know they that suggest that within the metropolitan area, um, you had many more. But 60,000 is a pretty good... That's pretty good, huh? Yeah. And a substantial location, obviously, Tikal being a very well-known site. Right. 
And we will resume our very fascinating discussion with Dr. Tim Pugh of Queens College on the Maya and the post-classic period and eventually European, Euro-American Euro contact after these words. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming Live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Can you dig it, We are back with a unique episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's topic is the Maya and the emergence of the post-classic culture, which is sort of a, I don't know, it would be sort of a poor successor to the classic Maya, which was featured tremendous amounts of monumental architecture, sophisticated political systems, and uh, archaeological treasure troves, if you want to call them that, Mm -hmm. that ultimately gave way to a more subdued culture, if you want to call it that as well. And I'd like to ask Tim about his own research in that regard. You are working with the Itza and the Kohl. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and tell us the context of that type of archaeology in Guatemala. And I would like to mention that Tim is broadcasting directly from Guatemala, and it shows you that Skype is, does work very, very well in many, many situations. So, Tim, please. Okay, so the, there were, when the Spanish came through, actually... Um, Cortes came through this area in 1525, and then there were several other explorers, and they described that there were two groups, and one, well, actually there were a number of different groups, but there were two main groups, and one was called the Itza, and they, they lived in the western part of the lake, 
and the other was called the Kowo, and they lived to the east. And these two groups, sometimes they would they seemed to cooperate, but frequently they were at war. So they, they seemed to have been competitors. Now, archaeologically, when we look, you know, the, the Spanish actually described where these groups lived, and we can actually see their, their sort of ethno-specific signatures archaeologically in their ceramics. Um, they had two very different ceramic types, and there is very little overlap. For example, in the Esau area, only about 1% of the ceramics are the Kowo type. And in the Kowo area, it's the opposite. So they, they definitely drew the lines with their ceramics. The same thing is true with their architecture. For example, Kuo eats Kuo um, domestic architecture. Um, they had they had walls and, and and nice plaster floors, and they seemed to be their domestic their residential architecture was more substantial. But Itza ar- residential architecture was it seemed to have been made of perishable materials. Now the um, those two groups uh, between the two, the Itza were the more powerful. And they, the, the, the ruler of, the, or the sort of the, the dominant leader of the area, uh, was the Itza leader, and um, so, well, despite that fact, sometimes the Kuo tried to attack um, and and take over the Itza capital. Um, now, the the, the Itza leader though, claimed to have ancestry from the site of Chichen Itza in Yucatan, Mexico, uh-huh. and so. You've, you've probably heard that there are Itza up there. Now, this is a, a claim. Right. Uh, and, we, and we do see some similarities. We do, we do see that there are some symbols that, for example, reptilian um, heads that are mounted on architecture are similar. Um, and, and, a, and a ball court at the site that I'm currently working on is very similar to the, at least in the, the overall form, to the great ball court at uh, Chichen Itza. Um, and that we've, we had, did find in the Itza region. Now the Kowo, on the other hand, as part of so their their um, foundation myth, they claim that they migrated from Mayapan, which is also in Yucatan. And so you can see that they're both each of the groups is using its own sort of myth of of origin, and they're using two different places, but they're two very powerful places, and that are located in Yucatan. So obviously for the for the Itza and the Kowo down here, Yucatan was a very special place. So let me ask you this. Are you able or have you gotten to the point, research have gotten to the point where one is able to establish um, DNA signatures for, the, for these populations? We, we're just beginning that. We, we have a DNA project and they found DNA in a colonial uh, cemetery. Uh, I believe we have seven uh, samples, seven good samples so far. Um, and, but that, that we're just beginning, so we can't. There's no way we can link this to anything in, in Yucatan yet, right? Um, because this is just one one cemetery. And well, what I'm actually nice question, yeah, that was where yeah. I was going with that, yeah, yeah. And we, I'm actually putting together a sample, uh, actually a bunch of samples that I'll take back to the United States for a DNA study. Uh, when once I get permission from the Guatemalan government, um, I'll take those back probably in, in October. And see. By, by the way, how is it doing archaeology in Guatemala these days in terms of cooperative ventures with uh, local people, universities, and collaboration? How is that working? I think it's great. I mean, we do, of course, you know, since we do work in Guatemala, we, we have to follow Guatemalan laws, which I have no problem with. But we, we also work with a local university 
for example, I'm the director of the project. I have a co-director who's Guatemalan. His mm-hmm. name is Carlos Carlos Sanchez. He's a professor at the, the local uh, college. My administrator is also a professor at the uh, local college. And then we have actually the majority of students on the project are Guatemalan. I have currently um, just three American students working on the project, but then the rest, we, we have 10 Guatemalan students. So, um, and part of the goal of our project is to encourage interaction between students and also academics in the United States and other countries and in Guatemala. And are they involved in any cultural heritage and preservation efforts as well, or is it purely academic? Um, some are. Some of the students are. Um, this That's one thing... Um, we are planning to do is to maybe reconstruct some buildings. Is that is that what you're asking? Yeah, just uh, because this is a movement that is very strongly being championed in uh, in countries in which this type of work is being done, sort of ecotourism and um, trying to sort of develop an economic foundation for combining archaeological research with preservation and tourism. Mm-hmm. Going forward, and I think, you know, personally, I mean, this is a little off the topic, but I think that's where a lot of this kind of work is going and where much of the funding is going to come as the, uh, pot, uh, as the pots of money for pure academic research are drying up. And that's, that's a fact. Um, yeah, um, we, we actually, the, the person who, there's a, the landowner of the site where I'm working now, the site of Nishun Cheech, um, that family is the Vergara family, and they're really interested in developing the area, not, not reconstructing, but develop, setting up something where tourists can move through. It's currently a cattle ranch, which is actually, strangely enough, has led to the preservation of the site. And the, the Vergara family is also very keen on, on keeping the site, um, keeping looters away and, and also making sure the buildings aren't damaged by other means. So they're, they're very interested in developing something like that. We're working with them on that. But it's, it's, right now it's in its initial stages. So and, and let's get back to the, to the topic at hand. I mean, you're taking us here with this bifurcation, if you will, of the Itza and the Kowo. Uh, that puts us where at around 1,000 AD, 1,000, somewhere around there? Well, the des- description by the Spaniards, that occurred at 1525. But the first evidence we have for the Kowo is prob- probably dates to around AD twelve fifty. Uh-huh. For the Itza, you could push it back a little bit further. The, the first actually, it's kind of gets fuzzy. Um, the Itza, their ceramics show up at the very beginning of the post classic, and there are probably some ceramics that go back into the terminal classic that are also related to the Itza. So we believe that the Itza probably moved into this area. Um, these are Yucatec-speaking groups as opposed to the, the, the Cholan-speaking groups that probably occupied Tikal and so on. So they probably moved into this area around the time of the Terminal Classic period. And so it's probably part of this turmoil, the, the collapse of the Maya civilization. And so here we are well into the post-classic. So tell us, set up, if you would, the scenario of the Spaniards coming through this area at, for the very first time. What are they seeing? What are they perceiving? And, 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 and what is the nature of that contact? Because I think people are very fascinated about that topic since we're now starting to see those contact period sites and reconstructions all over the New World. 
Well, the, the first contact, direct contact in this area occurred because Hernan Cortez um, was passing through the area because he, as you know, he, as you know, he was in, heavily involved in central Mexico at the time. But one of his, uh, well, one of his sort of uh, captains um, decided to rebel. And so Cortez headed down to what is now Honduras, and he passed through this area, you know, on his way to put down this rebellion. And when he, when they passed through the area, um, actually a person named Bernard Diaz was with him, and he rewrote a, a large book um, about what happened. And, and Cortez himself also wrote letters to the King of Spain, and they described the capital as this large white city, shining white city on an island. And uh, that's actually the same island that I'm on now, but the, the shining white city that was there uh, several hundred years ago is now underneath the modern town. Um, so they described that, but, but with the Spaniards, they, they brought with them several thousand Mexica warriors and also you know, you know, Spanish warriors and, and so on. And so it, it kind of it, it terrified the Itza. And so he did have a meeting uh, with some Itza uh, lords, um, and he, it did, it, he had to leave one of his horses here. Mm-hmm. And there's a big there's a big myth about what happened to his horse, um, and you know after that he just he, you know moved on down to the south to put down this rebellion. So that was the, that was the first direct contact. Um, but you can imagine that uh, word probably traveled really fast um, because there were there were actually a couple of Spaniards who were shipwrecked um, earlier than than the Cortez events, and they were shipwrecked off the coast of what is now probably what is now Honduras, um, and they interacted with Maya groups and they actually eventually one of them survived to meet back up with with Cortez so um, you know the the Maya probably already knew about at least the Maya pretend probably already knew that there were some strange uh, new people um, in the area are there any artistic renderings or reconstructions of that contact very few in this area there are none but there are some um, paintings. Uh, the one that comes to my mind right now, I can't remember the name, mm-hmm. but it's it's from the, the Guatemalan Highlands, but it was painted by, actually it was painted by a, a Mexica person, and it, it's just a painting of the, the uh, Spaniards uh, moving into the Guatemalan Highlands. But of course, and you may be familiar with um, other uh, Mexica um, drawings of Spaniards, but other than that... At least in this area, there are no representations that I can think of of Spaniards. Now, if you go to Yucatan, you you will see um, clearly, some, yes, a lot, yeah, yeah, yeah of yeah. course. And we will return with uh, our guest, Dr. Tim Pugh of Queens College in New York City, uh, right after these words. Uh, we will conclude the program right after that. So, stay tuned. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat Jr., President and CEO of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products 
and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Are you happy with just accepting and passing along what the media, politicians, and government are feeding you? Or are you positively sick of it? It's time to get the real facts and form your own decisions. It's time to awaken the sleeper within you. Each week, host Dr. Nick Castellano will uncover various viewpoints and topics designed to inform and present the truth. Today's masses are manipulated by media coverage, and we will not become sheeple. Tune in to Awaken the Sleeper, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are back and discussing the transition of the large classic to post-classic cultures in, of the Mayan civilization in Guatemala with my special guest, Dr. Tim Pugh of Queens College in New York City. And Tim is currently working at a research site called Nixtunchich, which uh, will uh, probably, and, and he'll discuss this, uh, inform us significantly about not only the developments in the, uh, towards the end of the post-classic period, but also bridge the connection between the post-classic and Euro-American contact, in this case, of course, Spanish contact. So, Tim, tell us a little bit about what you're doing and what types of research questions you're looking at at Nixnochich. Well, the site in Eastern Cheech is a is a special site because it's 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 really well preserved. At least most of it is. Um, some parts have been destroyed, but by modern construction. But most of it's really well preserved, and we have several different points of uh, or several different time periods of contact with the Spanish. And so, one part of the site we actually have a mission. We have the mission of San Jeronimo. Uh, we found some glass beads and all kinds of you know actually some Spanish olive jar shirts. And other Spanish objects there, but you know, most of our artifacts are indigenous because it was a mission and most of the people living there were, were indigenous. And even the Spaniards, the, the few Span- if, if any Spaniard was living there, um, they would have also, the, well, at least the Spaniards and Flores, would have had to, to depend a lot on indigenous um, ceramics as well, ceramics and other artifacts. Um, but but Nishtun Cheech also has contact period settlements. Uh, in other words, they, there are some little towns within this site um, that were occupied between 1525 and 1697. The missions were occupied after 1502. I'm sorry, sorry, after 1702. In addition to that, there are some 
Maya occupations during the late post-classic period. And this, mm-hmm. these were sites that were occupied before contact. And right. so that's, that's why I'm interested in this, this. Well, I'm interested in this site for a number of reasons. This site makes me interested in it just on its own because of its, you know, the cultural materials there. But it allows me to, to look at what happened before contact, what happened during contact, and what happened after the conquest of the area. Because this area is unique because the contact period lasted 172 years. If you go up to Yucatan, the contact period lasted 20, you know, around 20 years. You know, the, 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 the period between initial contact and conquest. So and this so, is really fascinating because you're looking at a site that was uh, sort of encountered by the Spanish relatively late in the, in the conquest, if you will, and it gives you a, a, sort, of a, a sort of a snapshot of all the major occupations. So what is this teaching you, and, and what are you learning from all of this? We're actually learning a number of things. Um, I, could, I could go on and on. One thing I'm interested in is, is where, initially, during contact, where do Spanish objects occur? Right. And, you know, there's this old idea about how you have these indigenous people, and they, you, you give them, uh, you know, modern or European-style objects, and they, they worship them. To some degree, it's some sites that actually holds true. Although people don't worship the objects, they're putting them in special places. Now, why they're doing that, we don't know. Mm-hmm. But, but they are put it, putting them in, in places where um, they, they place special deposits. For example, right in front of a temple, I found a few Spanish objects there at the site of Zacpatin. I also, in the same site, I found a musket ball cached in front of one of the temples. Um, we found the same thing at the site of Tyasol. There was a musket ball cache in front of the temple. And so for some reason, they're depositing these metal objects. Um, and it's really interesting because they did the same thing with Mexica metal. Uh, the Mexica, and also some Maya groups were producing gold objects. Now, now, no one, we don't know of anyone in Patan that was producing gold objects. But they, when, when the people of Patan did get those objects initially, they were putting that, they were caching them in front of temples. Same thing happened with Spanish objects. Um, but then later on, and this is what I'm really interested in, what happened as the Maya became accustomed to the Spaniards and realized that these people, uh, well, you know, the, you know, they're humans. You know, they're, they're not special people from another, well, they, they work from another land, but not from a, a magical land. And what we see, though, is that as, as sort of, as objects become more and more common, they be, they're not venerated or, or placed in a special location. It could be that they weren't ever venerated, that they were just, they were, people were scared of them. Um, mm-hmm. Because a lot of these things came from firearms. I mean, who knows why they were caching them. But as right. time passed, they stopped doing that. And they just became deposited in, in everyday um, trash deposits. And the caches themselves, who cached them? It, well, they, were, <clears throat> they would have been probably cached by the, uh, the priests and, and, the, and the rulers, or ruler right. priests, probably about the same time. Because they tend to, where we find these things, they are in civic ceremonial areas. And it's, it's, it's the, probably the most, if you look at the sociopolitical sort of center of the site, that's where these things were cached. And they, they're, they're cached along, you know, the line moving from the temple stairway across the plaza, uh, moving east to west. We are running out of time, but Tim, I really want to know, and I think a lot of people want to know, what, what, what is your interpretation at this point of the nature of the encounters? And were they very violent? Were they somewhat peaceful? What do we know, and are there any accounts of it that you think might be reliable? Well, people... 
by the time they, they conquered this area, Spanish colonialism had become sort of uh, less violent, but at the same time, while people were not legally enslaved, they virtually were enslaved. They essentially they could, they could not move from their communities. They, they were required to do certain work. They weren't paid enough for that work. And so it was not, for the Maya people, it was not a good situation. Now, also for the Spaniards that were here, it was not, they didn't want to be here. This is, this is sort of the middle of nowhere as far, you, could, you probably couldn't get any further on the periphery of the, the Spanish empire. Right. And so the Spaniards also didn't want to be here. So it was sort of a place where the Spanish were unhappy and, and the Maya were, were also unhappy about being incorporated into the Spanish empire. So... So it's like the expand. This was like the outer edges of the expansion, and nobody really wanted to be there. Right. I mean, the Yucatan has been referred to as the colonial backwater, and right. this would be sort of the backwater of the backwater. You know, relative to Mexico City or Antigua, Guatemala, sure. or you know, Cuba or somewhere like that. It's, it, it's not. It's not a, It would during the colonial period. It would have been way out there. And are there accounts? There are reasonable accounts of this. There are. There are a lot of written documents. Actually, a lot of the documents are available in the Guatemalan archives, and I've done some archival work. An important book um, was written by Grant Jones called The Conquest of the Last Maya Kingdom, and it's a really good read, by the way. And it describes the Spaniards' initial activities here um, and how they interacted with the, the Maya people. And, uh, and some other work has looked at what happened even after that. You know, Grant Jones's book goes up until around 1740. But there have been other studies that they go beyond that and look at what happened to the Maya people afterwards. And these are historical accounts, right? I mean, these are... Right, right. but Grant Jones actually worked with us for a while on this, uh-huh. as part of this project. And he also worked with archaeologists in Belize. So he's always been... He's, a, he's an ethno-historian, but he's always been sort of tied to archaeologists because he, he, he likes to see his materials ground truth. <laughs> he, he knew that, yeah, yeah, he knew that sometimes the Spaniards, you know, you know, you can't take uh, Spanish interpretations uh, literally because sometimes they exaggerated, sometimes they simply weren't true, and sometimes they didn't know where they were in the landscape. And this is a common f- uh, foible for all accounts of encounters between uh, colonial occupations and uh, indigenous populations and you sort of have to filter through it and, and as you said it's uh, it's quite an exercise to see how the archaeology cross matches with the historical accounting very often um, it actually turns it on its head uh, Tim I want to thank you very much for participating in the program we are out of time now and I want to thank the listenership for participating. And Tim, thanks very much for enlightening us about the Maya decline and the encounters with, with the Spaniards. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. And that'll be it. And we will see you again next week. Thank you so much. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.